Hello, I'm Asad Liaquit and this is Unpacking Us. Pakistan has been hit by catastrophic floods. When I was recording the first episode of this podcast with Asim Khwaja, we couldn't imagine in our worst nightmares that the next episode would be about a disaster of such epic proportions. I talked to Asim after releasing that episode, and we both shared a feeling of unease about that episode. Because while the balance of payments crisis is an important problem, it pales in significance and relevance compared to the floods. I have two more episodes in the pipeline with Fiza Sajjad on the urban housing crisis and with Sarah Khan on the gender gap in voting, and I'll release them in due time, but today we'll talk about flood recovery. It's hard to wrap our minds around the sheer scale of the damage that has been caused by these floods. Satellite images show that more than a third of the country is underwater. Most of Pakistan's cropland and livestock seem to have been destroyed. 33 million people are reported to have been affected, and more than 1,200 have died. A recent estimate by the Atlantic Council's Ozair Yunus and by Amar Khan pins the damages at $13 billion, with 7 billion of them occurring in Sindh province alone. This estimate and others can help us come to terms with the scale of the problem, and in the hands of the right people can be put to use in relief and recovery efforts. But by and large, we simply don't know enough at the local level about where people have been most affected and what are the ways in which they have been affected, what they need most, and when. My guest today is Tahir Andrabi. He's a professor of economics at Pomona College. He was the inaugural dean of the Lum School of Education, an institution he built up from the ground. I've known him for 11 years now. He's been a mentor to me. I have traveled with him in rural Faisalabad and Kasur and Kherpur and the goats of Karachi. I've learned a lot from him, not just about economics, but also about Ghalib and about how to cook mutton karahi the right way. It's his research on education that has achieved the most prominence. But the reason I'm talking to him today is his work on disaster recovery in the aftermath of the 2005 earthquake in Pakistan. Along with Jishnu Das and Nasim Khwaja and others, he set up RiseBak, which was an information aggregation portal to coordinate disaster relief following the earthquake. I'll talk to him about what we can learn from that experience to help us recover from the current floods in the weeks and months to come. He has also published research on the long-term effects of the earthquake on the lives of those who suffered most from the earthquake. And I'll talk to him about what we can learn from that to try and avert negative long-term outcomes for those who have been affected by these floods. Tahir, welcome to Unpacking Us. Thank you, Asad. Uh, It's great to be here. Even though what brings us together is a very uh, sobering event, uh, a catastrophe, but it's important to talk about it and really think about how to move forward. So I want to start by thinking about what happens in the aftermath of a disaster like a flood or an earthquake. Based on your experience in the 2005 earthquake, how would you characterize the various stages of recovering from a disaster like this? And what stage are we in right now? So typically when disaster professionals think about organizing effort, they talk about four phases. And the phases are really the four R's. There is rescue, there is relief, there is rehabilitation and reconstruction. So rescue is the immediate, right? What is called the first responders. 
So the first responders have to act very quickly. So this is where the pictures that you see in, uh, on, on the internet of people being rescued from within the, the, the these raging waters and so on, uh, and getting them to kind of safe places. Uh, safe places could be like camps, could be more dry ground. A lot of people would go to organized settings, but many people kind of go to friends and family uh, in the Pakistani context uh, where uh, they are the first in the in the first phase. The interesting, really, question is uh, is you know Pakistanis, particularly in rural areas, are very tied uh, to their land, and so getting them to move even out of harm's way, uh, you know, can be a challenge. We saw that in the earthquake. Uh, now that could be you know Asad, you're a political economist. I mean that could be because of uh, insecure property rights or 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 just a, a familial kind of a claim to the land. Uh, uh, but I think there is there are some challenges in rescue. Now, in, in the in the rescue part, uh, what you need is particular type of resources, right? I mean, it depends on whether we need uh, helicopters uh, or how localized the problem is. Do need, people need to be moved over further directions and all that? My sense is that in Pakistan right now, I, even though uh, the water rising water has still not finished going through the, the, the whole Indus Basin, uh, there will still be uh, an, uh, an impetus for rescue. But I think that the rescue phase is coming to an end uh, very soon. And there we get into the next phase, which is relief. Uh, now, relief is, 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 I think, where we are, uh, either we are already there or just getting into it. So that phase there. And relief is, is, is where you really think, you have taken people out of imminent harm right away. And then what do you have to do with them? Well, I mean, you know, you have to provide them, you know, the basics. The basics are, are few food and nutrition. Uh, you need to be able to get to them that. Uh, and then shelter. Uh, and then, you know, you've got to get in the food and nutrition. You've got to think about, like, clean water. Uh, you've got to think about, like, hygiene. I mean, how are you going to set it up? Uh, are people going to, you know, do it on their own? Uh, in the sense that you provide them some resources and you let them figure it out, or are you going to provide them in some coordinated, centralized manner and so on? Uh, are you going to provide them tents? Are you going to provide them sheets or shelter? Uh, you know, different geographies are have different needs. Some some might be we're in the middle of the summer, uh, so some places could be really hot. Uh, others are uh, more in the mountains. So I think the the rehabilitation part uh, really requires. Uh, 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 a resource base and coordination which is quite different uh, from the rescue part. Rescue part mm-hmm. is, you know, is is is, uh, is is where you need these superheroes uh, to rescue. Uh, with rehabilitation, you are getting now more into kind of basic organization of, uh, of relief and it brings in uh, many more challenges uh, even though the numbers may not be that dramatic, right? I mean, the loss of life is not going to happen. But what you can do is is, uh, is is have a big impact on kind of more the hidden invisible deaths that may not be attributable to floods, but could be attributable to disease, or you could uh, uh, further aggravate situations like uh, like uh, chronic malnourishment uh, or hunger and so on. So I think that's that's where we are right now. So thinking about the various organizational aspects of the relief and recovery stages, the task seems fairly complicated. 
Um, there are a lot of actors involved. There are various government agencies at various levels. There are NGOs. Um, there are foreign donors. There are individual actors. And then there's very localized kind of community efforts. And these actors need to know what's needed, where it's needed, and, and when it's needed. And what, what others are doing so that they don't end up doing the exact same thing in the exact same place. To, to what extent is this kind of information or data available? And how important is it? to these relief and recovery stages? So data is always a problem. So Pakistan, the data resource required for organizing a proper a nationwide large scale a rehabilitation effort, and then later on a reconstruction effort, or, or a, you know thinking about compensation or getting the economy going in these regions or areas, um, is lack of micro data. So who has this data and why is it not being aggregated uh, and used? Well, you know, uh, Nadra has some information, uh, but not all. Uh, the Census Bureau has information on mozas and population and some idea about housing uh, structures. Uh, the Ag Census has something, uh, but uh, one of my big bugaboos in terms of all of their coordination is try merging the Ag Census with the Population Census. Uh, not something easy to do. I mean, you know, I spent all my life uh, trying to do these kind of things. Uh, then Suparco has some information. Pakistan Army uses its own maps. I worked a lot with Pakistan Army because which was the dominant relief force uh, in uh, the 2005 earthquake. We did a survey five years later, and basically the army covered about 95% of the people. They were the main ones, but they have their own mapping system. And that's not shared by the general public. Uh, the mapping system used by the rest of us uh, is by this authority, which has the monopoly on it, uh, called the Surveyor General of Pakistan. Now, the Surveyor General of Pakistan, I mean, I don't want to name names here, but it just looks like an authority which is way behind, right? It's certainly not a 21st century agency. Um, so my point is that organizing something at the micro level, uh, really even trying to ascertain losses and then where to go, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, is, 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 is a very serious task. And I just don't think we are, uh, we have uh, learned anything from the earthquake and invested in that. And I think that that's something that, you know, it's, it's a problem for all of us. And the whole idea of creating these organizations out of the earthquake experience, out of the Federal Relief Commission at the era, things like NDMA, the National Disaster Management Association, is also to be the coordinating body who does something like that. My sense is that, you know, they are really focusing a lot on rescue and relief. Uh, mm -hmm. Going beyond rescue and relief, when we go into rehabilitation, you know, what is the structure of governance and organizational structure within the state that is going to manage it? I think we need to get very quickly working on that right now. If somebody is already not working, they should be. So, so that completely resonates with me in terms of the rehabilitation stage, but also in terms of the relief stage, because what we're seeing now is a lot of actors collecting funds, collecting in-kind donations to try to get relief to the right places, but we don't have a centralized clearinghouse to figure out where the need is the highest. Um, and so it is going to be useful at that stage too, but from what you're describing and from, and from what we know about what's happening on the ground, it doesn't seem like we have very good, efficient allocation of, of these resources right now. You, you're absolutely right, Asan. I mean, I think that, you know, the the problems of organizing relief and then organizing uh, rehabilitation 
kind of meld into each other, right? I mean, they are not like these are. By the way, these are not like independent, hard and fast stages, right? Sure. I mean, there is, there is, there is, there is a lot of fuzziness. Uh, a lot of relief is really, you know, becomes part of rehabilitation, uh, and a lot of rehabilitation really has to work backwards into towards the relief part. I fully agree. Uh, I think that uh, in relief, it might be the problem. The relief, the problem is more acute, right? Because mm-hmm. people do need relief uh, in a in a much more time sensitive way. Uh, where at least rehabilitation, maybe perhaps they can wait a little bit uh, in terms of the dire need. Uh, so I agree. I mean, I think that we just don't know enough. Okay, so so let's start getting into the weeds a little bit more. Um, what exactly would you like to know, and 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 how exactly would that help both kind of organizations and individuals who are trying to help? The problem is, is in Pakistan, what we need is a lot of information which is decentralized. So, you know, I I am bombarded, as you are, uh, as is everybody else, by saying, well, tell us what are more credible organizations that give on the ground. Right? I mean, there's the usual suspects. Well, of course, you know, everybody loves AD. Uh, And uh, you're sure if somebody asks me, you know, should I give money to AD Foundation? I would say, yes, yeah, please do. Uh, You know, given their track record and all that. However, I have no idea, you know, where AD is going. I mean, where is the, is it, you know, what district are they going? I don't even know that. Forget the district. Pakistani districts, you got to remember, right? Pakistani districts are very large, okay? Pakistani districts and a typical Pakistani district, you know, there's like, what, 120, 130 districts in a country of 200 million people, right? Mm-hmm. So each district is close to like a billion and a half to two billion people, right, on the average. Of course, right, Lahore right. and urban guys are bigger. But having said that, uh, these are very large expanses, lots and lots of households and people. I'd like to know where people are going. It would be very nice, uh, you know, for, you know, AD, I'm using AD because they're a credible organization, for right. AD to tell us very specifically, you know, this is a, a, with as much geographical detail, which ideally it would be with the database mapped onto a digital map uh, where I could actually click, right? So, I mean, I would like to know if I want to say the following. Uh, you know, I have some uh, background in Sindh, let's say, and I would say, you know, I'd like to give in 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 one of the talukas of Kherpur district. Okay, well, how do I know where to give, where where is going? I mean, what might happen? What do you worry about? And this is generally true for aid, is that aid will go where aid it is convenient to give aid, where it sure. is easier to give aid. Uh, so what you want to make sure is is that the people who actually need it. So you, what you really worry about is that some place is getting a lot of relief, lots mm-hmm. of blankets, lots of tents, lots of food packages, and others not. And I think that the only way to do it is to do it kind of a ground level stuff. So one of the things we did in, in Rise Park is, is, is to create this website and through a lot of work, uh, managed to convince some of the biggest providers of relief, including Pakistan Army, uh, including the UN World Food Program, and including some of the large private NGOs like Islamic Relief and many others, we got about 75 organizations to sign up Okay, mm-hmm. on that. It took a lot of work, but not that can much. You, it took two weeks. Can you take a step back and tell us about what Rice Park was? Yeah, I think I should. I got carried away by this whole thing because I think that the that what you need is people to, what you need is to mobilize people. Okay, mm-hmm. so what Rice Park did is recognize this fundamental complication in this whole problem, 
So the fundamental complication is that what you need is a lot of decentralized information. Mm -hmm. What you need is a lot of decentralization, centralized information. I'm an economist, so both from the supply side, which is where the providers are going. I need to know what villages are uncovered, what villages where there was more loss, uh, was more aid provided. So that's on the supply side. But then how do I know? So I, I, I need to know where the providers go. But then at the same time, I need the demand side. I need to know the demand side, which villages have the highest need. You know, right. is there pockets of, of small groups of people? Remember, villages also have settlements. I mean, the villages is a, is a complex uh, spatial structure. So what we need is both this information decentralized. What we need is for villagers to be able to be able to, you know, think in terms of uploading information as to what the status mm -hmm. is right now. Hey, we are village number, Chuck number, of, you know, 236 in, uh, in a particular district in southern Punjab, and uh, we last received some aid here, uh, you know, two weeks ago, uh, some relief. It was in the form of blankets, some food, uh, but what we really need are tents, uh, and uh, perhaps what would be nice is to be able to get some clothing or clean water. And that's an information that needs to come up. And what Rice Park did is facilitated that at different levels. We managed to make a deal with, uh, I think it was with uh, one of the largest uh, cell phone companies at that time. Remember, we were back mm -hmm. when the technology was not very good. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which is that people could text. Mm -hmm. And people could text and there would be an automatic GPS kind of a code on that. Uh, right. So that would go up. So I think that's what you need. Now, that's a decentralized. There is no way you will be able to get that demand level heterogeneity unless it's done in a decentralized way. And sure. also the relief providers have to have a full understanding of where, the, where it was. So, for example, in the UN, when we talked to the UN, which was, you know, World Food Program was the one which was, you know, coordinating with government agencies uh, to provide these food packages, which is a big part of relief. Uh, when we asked them uh, as to, you know, what was going on in terms of the coverage, they did not have any data below the district, right? Wow. I mean, even though the people on the ground did, right? People in the ground were working with, right, with whatever information they had, but there was no way if I would call uh, World Food Program and I say, you know, here I am, I have now uh, truckloads of aid that I have organized. I know you guys are providing somewhere. Tell me where to go. Right. Well, I think that question has to be answered. But how, but how does that question get answered? And, and what's the underlying systematic reason that this question isn't already being answered? So there is what we would call in the language of economics, a market failure here. But that is the coordination. Uh, the aggregation part, I think, is a technical problem. I think that's the easiest part to solve. Right? I mean, where, you know, how is this stuff aggregated and then reported back to people? So we need that. But I think the coordination part of how do you get all these different people to sign up? And I think that's part of, you know, there has to be a wing in uh, like NDMA or something, the National Disaster Association Authority, which is thinking in what Asim Khaja, my partner in this, and Jishnu Das, my third partner, and, you know, we have been working on this stuff forever. Uh, what we call systems level thinking, which is what we really need to understand is what systems level thinking in our view is it understands that you need to empower actors who are working in this decentralized setting 
but you need to solve their problem and their frictions and the problem they face is a lot of it is this coordination problem. That to me is, is what the organizational structure around relief need to, needs to look like. So I, I couldn't agree more uh, with you that the technical problem is far easier to solve, especially in, you know, given the technological progress that has happened since the earthquake. I can very easily imagine the technical infrastructure being set up in a matter of days if somebody were to do it. But it's, it is the coordination problem, getting the right actors to adopt this system such that it does become this kind of useful lifeblood of, of the relief, relief and rehabilitation efforts. That would be the challenge. Um, so now let's think about if someone were to try to put uh, a rice park equivalent together for these floods, what would that take? And how would you think about trying to solve this coordination problem? I think that has to be done at the level of the agencies. Okay. So, you know, I would get, so one is this whole data information people. That's Nadra. Uh, there is, uh, you know, the Census Bureau. I, I, we actually got them together. We, we managed to convince the Federal Relief Commission to create uh, a wing in which, you know, each organization would have a representative who was empowered to share this information and we would create this common data. It's not that hard. You need about, I would say you need about 15 to 20 people in a room. Uh, we need the mapping people, the satellite people, uh, the, the, the census people. Uh, think about that, right? I mean, and then... You know, we need some young people who start telling us, you know, how to use this uh, light data, satellite data, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever is the modern techie version of the, you know, I'm still thinking of 20th century uh, or early 21st. But whatever that equivalent is, I don't think it's that hard to create a system. Then you get the media on board. You have to get the telcos in there, right? I mean, the telephone companies. I think they are right. central to, in the modern day and age, uh, I would say if we can get cell phones which send text messages with an automatic GPS tag to it, saying what we need. Just think about it. You make an announcement right now, Asad, and tell people, hey, wherever you are, right, tell us what you need. Crowdsource that information. But it has to be geotagged, so I know exactly where you're coming from. Uh, and, and we can standardize that information as to what format it takes. We can do that. It's not, it can take us, all of this can be done, I, I tell you, in a day. Right, and that information, when it's standardized, then you have uh, uh, a centralized place where that information can be aggregated and then spewed out to the people. But then you have to then map it if you want to really start getting into the rehabilitation phase, deconstruction phase. You have to get start mapping it into the other data forms. You can merge it with you're a political economist with uh, with the election commission data, so you can start getting the politicians. And just imagine if all of this information is conveyed to a politician in a particular constituency. And I go and say, hey, in your constituency, right, uh, I have, you know, 3,000 people who are uh, without blankets, or I have 200 people uh, who need some vaccination or there, there has been some outbreak of some epidemic. So I think it, all of that, right? So I don't think it's a pipe dream. I think it's, it's eminently doable. Doable by whom? Uh, you know, I think the initial impulse has to come from uh, people who are activists. This is what I tell all my students, which is, you know, you can be an activist in terms of mobilizing for aid. But I think that you need your, but your comparative advantage. I'm not Bill Gates. My comparative advantage is not money. I'm not going to give a lot of people, right? Like Tim Cook said, 160 million. 
Well, most people in Pakistan can't give 160 million. They can't even give anything, right? I mean, what are you going to give? Not much. But you do have this technical expertise. And my sense is what you need to do is to be able to work on some part of this data side. Listen, this is serious stuff. This is not just about saying, you know, hey, let's take a truck out there and, and, and distribute some blankets. I mean, this is now creating a modern infrastructure for a serious policy response. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is this serves as an inspiration for people who are listening in too to think about ways to contribute beyond just donating. Um, and I should point out that some of these estimates that, that I gave you earlier about, you know, $13 billion in damages, they are coming from young people who are trying to put together some of, you know, the best available information that's out there to try to put together estimates of the damages. But they haven't yet been able to do that at a decentralized enough level such that it's useful for to be able to direct our efforts in a meaningful way. So, Asad, I think this is a very good example. I really should, as you did, acknowledge these efforts. I think this could be a nice working group, right? I mean, think about different working groups, right? When you say, how can people contribute? A working group would be, you know, let's think seriously about how would you estimate the damage, right? I mean, think about how would you do live, livelihoods. Each one right. of them is a pretty serious problem. It's not a simple problem. This is not, I mean, they're not trivial problems. They're not back of the envelope problems. Okay, so my sense is, you know, I, I would take that 13 billion, take that methodology, and come up with some sort of methodology where if I could then translate into some decentralized crowd effort. And should we think about this decentralized effort in the very short run, or, or does this kind of effort extend beyond the immediate aftermath of the flood? Let's put it this way. If somebody is listening right now and says, well, I want to think about it, but before I can really contribute, it's going to take me four or five years of work. I'll tell you, when the next flood happens, you'll be ready. We're not doing it just for this flood. We are setting up the infrastructure. And what I mean is like the human, the intellectual uh, infrastructure to deal with these things as they keep on coming. I mean, you know, it's not just about this. So Pakistan, may, you know, the point is what I'm worried about is, you know, the earthquake, by the way, right? really brought the country together. So, you know, you, we do know that, Pakistan, you know, this whole idea that Pakistanis can unite for a common cause, they did uh, at that time. And, even, you know, back, back at that time too, right? I mean, there was a dictatorship, there was lots, all kinds of problems. But we did. People from all over Pakistan, every province, you know, contributed. And I think that Pakistanis do feel it. So I think it will happen. But what I'm worried about is when the sense of emergency dies down, these people will go back into some sort of invisibility uh, and, you know, become like IDPs or something and, you know, off the news cycle. Well, what's going to happen to your sense of jazba or your, this motivation, right? So this, this idea of, uh, of, uh, of this motivation, which is driven by the disaster, I think has a pretty serious half-life. Uh, and what I want is, is, is to put some structures in place. Uh, and I can only talk about the structures that I know of which is the, this, this infrastructure that we talked about. Right. And, and I think what you said about this not being a one-off thing really resonates because climate disasters are going to happen again and again in Pakistan. Pakistan is, by some estimates, you know, maybe the seventh or the sixth most affected country by climate change in the years to come. And so these aren't going to be the last big floods in Pakistan. We're going to have more and more of these disasters and then building up that resilience in the long term 
such that we're ready the next time is going to be super important. I think you're right, right? I mean, you said about Ghalib. Let me just say, right? Ghalib said, Mujhe kya bura tha marna agar ek baar hota. Right? Kaunke se mein ke kya hai, shabhe gham bohi bila hai. Yeah, it's not going to happen once. And I think what we need to do is to, is to say this is the new normal. And this idea that the canonical model of thinking about Pakistan is Pakistani households, Pakistani polity, Pakistani society, Pakistani economy, living under all continual, not continuous, but continual shocks. I think that's that's what we are. I mean, it's we are living in a world which is uh, going to be volatile. I want to come back to thinking about the effects of these floods. As we move into the next stage um, of flood relief, we need to think about how to sustain the livelihoods, the health, the education of, of, the, of those affected, um, and what are the best interventions or policy levers to do that? Uh, you have done research on the long-term effects of the 2005 earthquake on health and education outcomes in particular. Um, in light of that research, what would your recommendation be here? Yeah, I think that one thing is, the first thing is is the following. Okay, so money does help. Okay, let's not kid ourselves. I know people are worried about fiscal space and all of this and stuff on Pakistan right now. But to get the economy moving and to get livelihoods back in place, uh, there's got to be uh, transfers uh, to these people. Uh, because remember from Sen onwards, talking about famines and all that, one of the big issues is that there is a loss of purchasing power uh, in these places. It's not just a supply, it's not just asset loss. It's also livelihoods and income. So what we need to do is to make sure there is income goes back into the hands of these people because that's what they can start spending. And I'm not just talking about, about from a welfare point of view, but from a systems point of view, because then they can start spending and the spending gets the market going. And when the market starts going, that's where you, what you do not want is shortages. And what you do not want is inflationary pressures in this economy, right? I mean, if, if there are shortages, then everybody will, will, will need a lot more uh, stuff to come in. So what you want to do is to get, so the government's job is to make sure that they get rid of the supply bottlenecks. So goods can go in. I'm talking about all kinds of goods. And Pakistani market, you know, you go to, I mean, I was in, in, in the summer in Kalam, I mean, ground zero right now and you go to 14,000 feet and there's a guy there selling frost okay and I'm thinking how the hell did you get it up there uh, there's no road or anything right so the, the, the commercial penetration of Pakistan is pretty high um, so I think that's one so let's not kid ourselves to get you know build back better get the economy moving all of that I think there has to be a program it can be targeted you know we can do it through this or we can do it through you know classic un- I mean I would say Unconditional cash transfers of some sort have to take place. If we think that we can get out of this without it, you know, uh, no. So let's not, right? I mean, there is, that's got to be the second phase. Now, whether, uh, you know, under this IMF program, all of this, maybe we need a separate aid for it. But we need to create a proposal. What I don't like is people asking for aid and everything else uh, without having a plan. I think that what I would like to do is to make a plan uh, which has sufficient detail. Uh, and it is, is, is feasible operationally, and then we take it to the world to fund it. Uh, I think people are much more willing. I mean, just as we write proposals, we know that, right? People are much more willing to fund uh, fund us if they think we have a pretty good idea of what we're trying to do. 
and I think we need to create a full plan for that. So that's one. The problem is money is not enough. Uh, there are some problems that money can solve, but others it can't. And that's really the hard part about these disasters. And I'll give you one example from my research, which, which is probably the most striking uh, thing I've ever encountered in my own uh, fieldwork and research, uh, which is that uh, we always like to think that Pakistanis are resilient. Even the prime minister used the word, right? This is a favorite word in Pakistan. Oh, Pakistanis are resilient. They will get back. Well, they do get back. Uh, you know, you look at post-earthquake uh, and you look at the infrastructure in the earthquake-affected areas, it's more or less at par with places that did not get the earthquake. Uh, and in some dimensions, it's even better because this whole build back better. You build, you build better buildings. You build better homes. Uh, if you look at uh, the schooling, which I look at a lot, uh, even enrollment is back to normal. Uh, consumption, household consumption is back to normal. So, you know, in, in, in all of those dimensions, it looks like it's a success, right? So we know how to do it. So there, there you know, so in that part, right, I mean, there is the micro detail about the immediacy of who to get. And if you want to be more efficient in terms of, you know, giving money in some targeted way, though I would say, you know, be loose. Don't be too targeted. Uh, but where it doesn't come into play is these health shocks for very young children. And in particular, of children who are in utero. Right? So I mean, this is the irony, right? That the most affected are the people who are not even born yet. I mean, I just saw a news report saying, you know, it was UNFP or somebody, some UN agency was estimating uh, how many pregnant women are in these affected areas. It's like half a million or something. I think in utero shocks are, are very strong and they affect, uh, they are very long term. And later investments, uh, cannot uh, compensate for that. So if you get an in utero shock, your mother, for example, becomes malnourished for an extended period during the uh, pregnancy, you will be born with uh, low birth weight, uh, significantly low birth weight. And that low birth weight, the your brain development in the first three years will really suffer. Your physical development will really suffer. And you are behind. I mean, in the earthquake area, everything is recovered. But one of the most uh, visibly distressing things uh, that I saw, uh, you know, I went there, you know, first four years later, and then I went there uh, uh, like nine years later, uh, was stunting. I mean, you see kids who are really stunted. Now, stunting means you're basically gone for life. I mean, your outcomes are bad. So in utero, I would say, First things first, get a program going where you start counting, figuring out where these pregnant women are. That's number one. Because those kids, if, you, if, if, if there is significant nutritional loss in the mother, uh, those kids are going to be scarred for life. That's one. Second is our research said, look at the, what is called the first thousand days. So in utero is the most important than people who are newborn, Zero to one, one to two, and then two to three. You know, this is called the first thousand days. I would say focus on young children there. I mean, if I have to create a priority, I would create a program for mothers and their children. Because that's protecting the next generation because those are going to be permanent shocks. 
Later on, if you give them money two years later, three years later, it's not going to help. That money is needed now. So I think that if there is in this rehabilitation phase, I would say if there is a sense of emergency, I would say on the economy side, pump in some cash so that these people can stay afloat and they don't die, right? You don't want people to start dying, right? I mean, I'm sure there's too much pressure uh, for, uh, for food transfers, but I would give some income transfers also and then focus on this, on this uh, nutritional program and supplements for young children. Uh, because that research, our research has clearly shown, and we have published it, it's been discussed a lot, uh, so it's pretty robust, uh, that that's really where the problem is. What about what about learning losses? Yeah, that's something that I am working on right now. now so this is the, 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 the issue in learning right now. When schools close for an extended period of time, kids fall behind. When they come back, if you continue as if nothing had happened, and you don't recalibrate either your pedagogy or instruction or the curriculum or how you do it or have a program, a specific program that works with parents, with teachers, you're going to recalibrate the system. If you don't do it, these losses can become permanent. Then again, you have a lost generation. You have these people who come up with very few skills. So think about it across the age spectrum. With very young kids, you have this really physical uh, developmental issues, which is the most serious. As kids get older, they don't suffer physically developmentally because the brain most development has happened, but they you, you there's a serious loss of skills. This is this is on top of extended school closures because of COVID. We already are coming up with like 18 months to 24 months of school closures. And we were just going to start right now after you know Eve, after 14th of August, schools were opening. And boom, we are back in this crisis again. So think about a kid who was five years old, four years old, six years old uh, in in March 2020 when schools shut down. The kid is eight uh, right now. And certainly it means over the last two and a half years, the kid has not gone to school at all. Now, if you think about most of these kids, the digital divide really comes in. If your parents are well off and are motivated and are capable and have the resources, or the awareness, whatever you want to call it, uh, they can compensate for these losses by doing things at home. And, you know, you go to a rich private school, you get all this internet homework, blah, blah, blah. But for the poor kids, they don't have any books at home. Uh, They have no resource support material. Uh, So what you really have to worry is about catch up. So I think in the long run, you know, the irony is that in COVID, we were worried about that the mortality of the older people is the most. Well, the reality is that the, one of the biggest burdens is going to be fall on the young people. So Pakistani adults recover. Pakistani children may not. And that's the real emergency. The real emergency is not that there's roaring floods. The, the real emergency is that little kid, some mom is carrying in her gold, and what to do about it, and you're going to see not an not just an effect now, but perhaps over the entire lifetime of that kid. So we need to make sure that these kids uh, are uh, we get uh, education going back there. We need to take care, right? I mean, public what's public policy? It's about taking care of the most vulnerable people in society, right? I mean, we got to identify those who they are. 
They can't be invisible because the poor are quite invisible. We, can't, we don't even know where they are. We need to have this whole targeting mechanism. This is modern development economics. This is what I teach. So Tahir, I want to end by asking you for your personal recommendation on what podcast listeners can do to learn more about this or what they can do to help out beyond donating. Yeah, I think that, you know, what is very interesting is that people face, in, in crises like this, people face or feel a lack of agency. And people feel a sense of powerlessness. Of what can we do? We can't do anything. My sense is what I really would like is for young people to really get to know Pakistan, get to know your country uh, in some deep uh, way, in some micro way, uh, in some uh, grassroots decentralized way. Uh, you know, go down, right? I don't care where, uh, but it would be so nice that in response to these floods, if, you know, Pakistan, by the way, right, uh, in the census data has close to 50,000 villages. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Do you, how many villages can we write a village report on? I don't care whether it's now for relief, rehabilitation, reconstruction. How many people are listening? I mean, if we say that in the next two years, we would start getting these crowdsourced village reports on uh, all these villages, right? As to what the status is, what the situation is. We can create some templates so that they are somewhat commonality to it. Uh, but I think that's what we need. I think people need to understand the world that they live in. Uh, otherwise, I think that, you know, with both with social media and the fact that we live in so many bubbles, that we really never get to the point of understanding the other understanding the poor, understanding the vulnerable. Uh, we need to really face it. Uh, that's why I think fieldwork is so important. Coming face to face with a person, talking about their own life, talking about their own aspirations, talking about, you know, what is it that has happened to these people who have gone through the flood? There is a whole, you know, social science literature about it. I mean, you know, just test it. Just go in. Go in with your priors. Challenge them. Tahir, this has been a sobering and an inspiring conversation at the same time. Thank you so much for being here. Asad, uh, thank you for inviting me and I hope that uh, uh, we can have lots of these conversations. Absolutely. You can find some links to what we talked about in this episode and to the recommendations made by our guest today in the show notes of this episode or on unpackingus.com. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this episode. Also, I'd love to hear what you like and don't like about the show. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can email me at asad at unpackingus.com. I can't promise to respond to every email, but I do promise to read and think about every email. Thank you for listening. <laughs>